This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 6, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news writer Megan Gannon discusses the fate of tissue samples gathered from prisoners by Nazis with Alexa Billow. Kelly Servick talks with me about a pair of robust-seeming tests for mad cow disease. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik. She's an editor for our daily news site here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on hatching dino babies. We know dinosaurs laid eggs and made nests, and it's likely some even sat on their eggs. But how long did they sit there? It's tough to tell looking back millions of years, but now researchers think they found an answer for some types of dinos based on their teeth. So Catherine, how can teeth help us with this question? Sitting on eggs and teeth, it does seem like a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? Yeah. You might have heard this before, but did you know that teeth, your teeth, my teeth, your cat's teeth, have growth rings. Mm-hmm. Just like the growth rings in trees, tooth rings, and I made that up, technically they're called von Ebner lines. They record your body's daily deposit of bony tissues called dentine. By counting the rings, which appear on the surface as fine lines, you can figure out how old a tooth is. But here's the thing. Up until now, these lines have only been seen in mammals. A couple of enterprising paleontologists, as they all are, (laughs) thought they might also be present in dinosaur teeth. And if they could find teeth in baby dinosaurs still inside the egg, dino embryos, they thought they might be able to calculate just how long those baby dinos were incubating inside their eggs. And it's not easy to find a baby dino inside an egg. There's plenty of eggs, but not many embryos, right? Exactly. Fossilized dinosaur embryos are the rarest of the rare. Mm. So where did they find those fossilized embryos? They found 13 embryos in all, 12 from a fossilized clutch of protoceratops eggs, 
and one from the egg of a duck-billed dinosaur. From the tiny embryo skeletons, they were able to extract a handful of teeth. It was like pulling teeth. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Things are getting tinier and tinier. We have a tiny dino in a tiny egg, and we're looking at tiny teeth and then daily lines in those teeth. Exactly. So, you know, talk about delicate dental work. Yeah. Um, When they looked at them under a microscope, they saw exactly what they had been looking for. Dozens of tiny growth lines. They carefully counted those lines using CAT scans, and they calculated that the incubation period of the dinosaurs ranged from about three to six months. That's kind of a surprising length of time. I mean, is that a normal egg incubation? I guess I don't know much about what chickens are doing. Well, yeah, and, and not many people know what dinosaurs were doing. Um, so, so, you know, it was a, a, a bit of a question. It was surprising, though, because modern birds, which are the closest living relatives of dinosaurs, hatch relatively quickly on the scale of weeks. Being inside of an egg is risky. It's easier for predators to eat you, and it's easier for your little home to be destroyed by drought or floods. Taking care of an egg is also risky. The longer parents exit, the longer they suffer from hunger and exposure to the very same predators that are going after their young. Now, scientists speculate that dinosaurs' long incubation time, which is closer to lizards than to birds, may have helped doom them to extinction. After an asteroid struck the Earth some 66 million years ago, it would have taken dinosaurs much longer to reproduce and rear their young than amphibians, modern birds, and mammals. Hmm. And so we're talking about dinosaurs in a very general way when we say that. Do they think that this long incubation time is for all kinds of species of dinosaur? That is a good question. Both species in the new studies are from the same major group of dinosaurs. But it's the other group of dinosaurs, the theropods, that are the ancestors of birds. If they also incubate slowly, then modern birds had a unique adaptation that gave them a winning lotto ticket of sorts for surviving the asteroid impact. Next up, we have a story on lightning hotspots. Let's just start by throwing out the old adage, lightning never strikes twice. Absolute hooey. In fact, lightning strikes certain places over and over. And now a new survey has put some solid numbers behind these hotspots. How did this survey work, Catherine? I mean, how can you capture lightning in a bottle? Well, there have been a lot of studies that have tried to capture lightning. Some of them have relied on uh, ground stations, actual human observation of the lightning strikes. But this particular study used a satellite. Now, this satellite covered the entire planet through the tropics and beyond from the latitude of Athens, Greece on the north to the latitude of Melbourne, Australia on the south. So that's a pretty big swath of the planet. In one glance, this satellite could take in an area about the size of Montana. Hmm. Now, that's about 600 kilometers aside. It passed over each spot between three and six times per day, viewing it for about 90 seconds at a time for a total of 18 years. Wow, that is a long time. And from this data, they were able, they were able to determine the most struck place on the planet. Drum roll, please. Where does lightning strike the most? I, I think you wanted to crash there. Yeah, symbol um, crashing. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. Since we're, we're asking this question and I don't have a quiz question for this week, do you want to guess? <laughs> I know the answer. Just 
<laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell our listeners the answer then. It's a little bay. Actually, it is South America's biggest body of water called Lake Maracaibo. It's on the northern tip of the continent, just south of the Caribbean in Venezuela. And the lake is surrounded by tropical forest and rimmed by high mountain peaks. The clash between the cool winds flowing off those mountains at night and the lake's tropical waters means that locals can expect a lightning show about 297 nights a year. Wow. So they don't just count one lightning strike every day. They see um, multiple strikes a day. Exactly. The satellite only captures a sample of that. That's right. The other cool thing that I learned from this story is that the lightning in this area is so reliable that early seafaring explorers used its flickering lights to navigate the Caribbean. Very cool. What were some of the trends that this data confirmed? I mean, do we learn more about why these hotspots are hotspots? So lightning hotspots are almost all in the tropics. Most of them are over land, and most of them are active from about noon until 6 p.m. They're also more active in the summer. Each of these factors works to widen the temperature gap between air at ground level and air higher up, helping humid air rise and fuel thunderstorms. Steep terrain also helps set up the clash between the warm and cool air masses that drive thunderstorm development. The new data supports these trends. It also supported another trend that has come up in other studies, that large lakes also tend to be lightning hotspots, including Maracaibo and Lake Victoria on the border of Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. In fact, Africa took the prize for having the most hotspots, 283 of the world's top 500 places. Scientists estimate that the hottest of these hot zones are likely struck by lightning tens of thousands of times a year. Lastly, we have a story on using feral pets to replenish wild populations. I'm always a little wary of ideas like this. Let's get a feral pet from one area and move them to another to help the wild one. You never know what will happen when you move animals around like this and then release them in the wild. But maybe it'll work for some animals. So, Catherine, what kinds of pets or wild pets has this been suggested for? It's been suggested for all kinds of pets, especially birds. The yellow-crested cockatoo is one, a medium-sized bird with bright white feathers that's a popular pet the world over. But intense poaching in Indonesia, where it came from, has brought its numbers down to critical levels. Another is something called the Javan mina, which is a black-crested bird that's a common pet in Indonesia. But there are other animals, too, including the Philippine deer and Burmese pythons, which are being hunted to extinction in Asia, but they're just taking over the Florida Everglades. Right. I mean, that's a big part of this. It does seem like these feral populations of pets are kind of popping up all over. My favorite example is the colonies of parrots that live in San Francisco. Do researchers really think that, you know, a feral animal will do okay if it's moved around? Is it a better idea than, you know, releasing an animal raised in captivity? Generally speaking, yes. Scientists think that feral animals may have a better chance of surviving in the wild than captive ones, which have a much harder time, as you can probably imagine, adjusting to the hardships of outdoor life, from finding food to avoiding predators. In this new study, researchers suggest relocating a feral population of that yellow-crested cockatoo I mentioned earlier. It's a popular pet in Hong Kong, where some of the birds have escaped and they're creating a growing community of several hundred birds in the city forests. 
The problem is these birds are competing with native ones for nesting sites and food. To kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, researchers recommend trapping the birds and releasing them on their home islands in Indonesia. These specific birds, it, you know, it doesn't seem like such a bad idea for them. What other animals might this work for? So that Javan mina that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that's the bird with the black crest, the Burmese python, the Philippine deer, and also a wild cow called the bantung, which was hunted to critical status in Southeast Asia but has a flourishing, introduced population in Australia. Hmm. Well, capturing and moving animals like this helps solve things in the long term. That's not an easy question to answer. Um, Even with the best of intentions, the process is going to be really tough. First, researchers have to make sure that they've got the right regulations in place to trap and export the animals. Then they'll have to make sure that the new animals haven't picked up any native parasites or illnesses on the way. Finally, and here's the rub, they'll have to make sure that the conditions that led to the decline of these native populations in the first place, which is usually habitat loss or poaching, are corrected. Otherwise, there's just no point in moving them back. On the contrary, the best hope for some of them might simply be staying put in their new safe havens. Mm. Okay, Catherine, let's talk about what else is on the site this week. We have a story on a part of the brain that unexpectedly grows after adulthood, and another on a promising new malaria vaccine. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on NASA's new discovery missions and potential threats to the U.S. census budget. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Blue Apron. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to do is go shopping for groceries, lug it back to the house, and start the preparation process. I would much rather have the food sent to me, prepackaged, recipes, all proportioned, and then I just get to cook it up and eat it. So straightforward. That's Blue Apron. And on top of its impact on your personal life, it has an impact on the food community. For example, the seafood used in Blue Apron is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. And in your house, cooking can build strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron's families cook nearly three times more often. Some of the meals available in January include seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney, spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots, and spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. In the 1940s, German research institutions were sometimes complicit in the atrocities of the Nazi regime. And to this day, remains of victims in the form of tissue samples sometimes turn up in the archives. The full extent of these institutions' involvement isn't entirely clear, but a new investigation aims to find out 
and lay the remaining victims to rest. Reporter Megan Gannon is here to discuss her story on tissue samples that have recently surfaced at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. I'm Alexa Billow. Megan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So your article is mostly about the Max Planck Institute in Germany, as well as its predecessor, which is the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. What was their role during and after the war in the murder of these people and then the use of them as supposedly scientific specimens? Starting in 1939, the Nazi regime ran what they euphemistically called a euthanasia program as part of its racial hygiene movement. And historians estimate that at least 200,000 mentally ill and disabled children and adults were killed under this program, usually in gas chambers. We now know that several researchers, some of them from the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes, were taking advantage of this program. They saw the killings as an opportunity to obtain research specimens. And one example that we know of now is the case of Julius Hellerforden, who at the time was the director of neuropathology at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Brain Research, which at the time was located in Berlin. And during the war, Hellerforden had accepted hundreds of brains from euthanasia victims. He even admitted that he initiated this collaboration with Nazi officials and he kind of implored them not to let their killing go to waste. In one conversation, actually, with an intelligence officer, Hellervorden told the Nazis that he could accept an unlimited number of brains. He said, the more the better. There's even some evidence now that he flagged certain patients to be killed so that he could study them. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and Hellervorden really didn't suffer any professional consequences after the war. He kept his job and he continued studying the brain slides that he prepared from euthanasia victims. He even published papers using those specimens through the 1950s. So most of those brain slides stayed in the collections of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which then went through a rebranding after the war and became Max Planck. And the specimens weren't really discussed until the 1980s when a journalist raised the issue and Max Planck decided to purge all of their brain sections that were obtained during the Nazi era. The Max Planck Institute for Brain Research, uh, which is now in Frankfurt alone, got rid of about 100,000 slides, and they had a burial ceremony in Munich in 1990. It is to their credit in German academia that they're confronting this terrible history and acknowledging their complicity. But why? Why is it happening now? Why is it taken until 2017? What inspired the effort that's getting started now? Among the leaders of the Max Planck Society, there does seem to be an acknowledgement that this kind of investigation is long overdue. And I think that for a long time after the war, no one at Max Planck was really interested in clarifying their role or their colleagues' role in possible war crimes. So this culture of silence kind of continued into the next generation. And then in the late 1990s, the former president of the Max Planck Society initiated a decade-long investigation into all the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute's activities during the war. And some of the sources that I talked to for this story told me that many historians of science, even during that investigation, had pretty problematic experiences with Max Planck and their archives. But some of those very critics have been brought on for this new effort, which I think is a good sign. And this new investigation has a pretty focused mission. Four independent researchers are supposed to have unrestricted access to several Max Planck collections and archives so that they can reconstruct in greater detail the networks that allowed scientists to exploit and coordinate with the Nazi euthanasia program. And what inspired the project actually was a pretty grim discovery about two years ago by a man named Heinz Vesla, 
who is a former director of the neuroanatomy department at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research. And he had been researching some of the victims of Hallervorden at an archive in Berlin when he basically stumbled on a cardboard box that contained about 100 brain slides. And it turned out that some of these slides had tissues from at least two victims of euthanasia. So that was a pretty upsetting find. He thought they had buried them all. And clearly they hadn't. Some of these specimens were misplaced or just overlooked over the years. And so in the new investigation, the team of independent researchers is also going to try to find out if Max Planck still has other slides in its collections elsewhere. So I assume that all of this stuff being pre-digital is like this cardboard box is sitting in file cabinets or it's sitting in boxes that have been gathering dust in some corner since the 1940s. How can they be sure they find everything this time around? Right. It's kind of an archival nightmare. And it's really an open question about how many other specimens are out there that they're possibly going to find. When that 1990 burial that I mentioned took place, the Max Planck Society didn't do a full accounting of all the slides that they were getting rid of. They didn't try to investigate the identities of the victims at that time. So it's made it pretty difficult to know what specimens still might be lingering in other collections. And after Heinz Wessler found the slides at the archive in Berlin, two other researchers were asked to do a random search in the specimen collection at the Max Planck Institute for Psychiatry in Munich. And those researchers found some Nazi-era slides, too. So the Institute for Psychiatry is going to be an important part of this study as well. And I guess the most important factor in ensuring that they get everything this time around is just allowing this independent group of researchers access to the relevant archives so that they can really do a thorough search. So what goes into identifying the victims? These remains are, they're probably like anonymized slides, like microscope slides with like a number on them type of thing. And that's what's going to make this project pretty tricky. How do you connect those to specific people? Any given euthanasia victim might have passed through multiple asylums and research institutions before they were killed. And then after they were killed, their brains might have been given a number, like you said, and passed through multiple labs. So this means that the researchers are going to have to trawl through all the files at all of the asylums, universities, euthanasia centers, and any of the other institutions that were linked to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes to try to connect each patients' clinical history to the research records. And they can narrow down the search in some ways. For instance, they know that certain euthanasia centers, like the one at Brandenburg-Gordon, were major sources of specimens for researchers at Kaiser Wilhelm. But it's still a huge archival puzzle to solve, and it's something that really hasn't been done on such a large scale before, and, and that's why they're giving the researchers three years to complete the project. Is there any discussion of using molecular techniques? Can you sequence these things and maybe match them to surviving family members? Is there any idea of trying to do something like that? That's a good question. And I haven't heard of them turning to those techniques yet. For now, at least, they're trying to do everything by just following the paper trails that were left behind. But that's certainly something interesting that, who knows, they might look at it in the future. But right now, they're at least not talking about it. You mentioned the previous burial in the 1990s. Is there a similar plan for any remains that this investigation turns up? Well, the Max Planck Society is going to wait until the end of the three-year investigation to decide how to give these remains a dignified burial. 
One thing that they were criticized for after the 1990 burial was the anonymous treatment of those specimens. Those slides were essentially buried in a mass grave, and some critics have said that this was almost like a posthumous cleansing, I think, is how one scientist described it at the time. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of privacy and ethical issues around naming mental health patients because of stigma around mental health. But I know that Max Planck officials and the independent researchers in this project hope they'll be able to name the euthanasia victims who were used in brain research, or at least use their first name and last initial. They think that doing this might help restore some of the dignity that these people were denied in death. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us on this very depressing but very important topic. Yes, thank you for having me. Reporter Megan Gannon writes about the remains of Nazi victims preserved as tissue samples in this week's issue of Science. The mad cow disease outbreak in the United Kingdom peaked in the early 1990s, but even today, there's no proven way to test human blood for the infectious agent of this disease, a misfolded protein called a prion. Now, Kelly Cervik is here to talk about two recent papers published in Science Translational Medicine on a test for the related human illness, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Okay, walk me through saying that one again. I think that it's Creutzfeldt-Jakob. Variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So, Kelly, can you start us out with the kind of disease we're talking about here? It's not your normal, you know, viral infection or a bacteria invader. It's, it's something not, else. Yeah. The, the infectious agent here um, is actually a protein, and it's a variation of a naturally occurring surface protein that is very abundant in our bodies and notably in our brains. Um, and what happens is this, this misfolded version actually binds to healthy proteins and prompts them to take on this misfolded configuration. And the result is the these diseased clumps, and it leads to this neurodegenerative disease that can cause hallucinations and dementia and eventually loss of movement and death. Um, and there are forms of prion disease that are heritable, but the one that we're talking about here, variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or VCJD, is very rare and comes from eating prion-contaminated meat from cows with bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease. Right. So there's a couple different versions of this, but at the end of the day, it's a misfolded protein that causes kind of tangles or bunches. Right, and sort of eats away at the brain. The tests we're going to talk about today, um, you know, they're new. But before that, what kind of approaches were used to find out if a person or an animal had this type of disease? Yeah, so doctors can do a kind of differential diagnosis, try to rule out other, you know, neurological diseases and in an autopsy of brain tissue, it's possible to detect prions and say after someone died that, yes, they had this disease. Um, the problem is that prions tend to be much, much less abundant in blood or in urine than they are in the brain or in other kinds of tissues. By some estimates, the prions are a billion times less concentrated in blood than they are in the brain. That makes it really hard to pick them up in a test. Mm. And there are a protein that naturally occurs as well. So it's it's not easy to test and find it. You also have to distinguish them from the, the normal version of the protein, right? Right. There's a big problem with not being able to detect prions. If we can't find them, we can't keep them out of the blood supply or find them inside of people. That's right. And something that really surprised me, studies based on appendix and tonsil samples from apparently healthy people in the UK suggested that as many as one in 2,000 people are carriers of these misfolded proteins. The thing is, we don't know 
you know, when or how these prions are going to make those people sick. Many people who ate contaminated meat will probably never develop this disease. And there have been incubation times as long as 50 years reported between when someone gets infected and when they show these symptoms. Mm -hmm. So if there's a chance that these infected people are going to develop VCHAD, we want to know who those people are and, and keep them from donating blood. So how are they even able to get samples to test these tests if it's so hard to find people with this? Yeah, so my understanding is both of the groups that published these new results, um, a group based at the University of Montpelier and another group at the University of Texas in Houston, they both got access to blood samples from people who died in Europe during the, the mad cow epidemic that peaked in the early 2000s. One group had 18 blood samples and another group had 14 that they sort of tested alongside uh, their presumably negative <laughs> samples. So as you can imagine, these are really precious resources in, in doing this kind of research. There are two approaches here. How, how are they same? What are they different? What kind of steps do they do to find this? Yeah, so really both of these approaches are based on a technique for amplifying prions in the blood, basically making them more abundant so that you can pick them up with a test. Um, and the idea is that you culture the abnormal prions with healthy prions and sort of agitate them with sound waves, and that sort of breaks off fresh clumps of the diseased prions that act as seeds to infect the surrounding healthy prions. So you're just sort of amplifying that content, and, and eventually with sort of repeated rounds of that process, um, you're able to pick them up in a test. Okay. They got the results they were looking for, you know, flagging contaminated samples or blood from people who they knew had the disease. But the small sample size has got to be a little concerning. It makes it really hard to validate tests like this. So yeah, like you said, both of the, the groups, they identified all of the positive samples correctly out of between about 150 and about 250 controls, some of them healthy and some of them with neurological, other kinds of neurological diseases that you would want to rule out. One group did have a positive result among the controls in a blood sample actually from a patient with a different form of prion disease. But it would be hard to call that a false positive because it's possible that that person also is infected with the disease we're trying to test for here. So, yeah, the big question now is, is how these tests are going to perform on a larger set of samples. And the groups need to show that they're not going to produce false positives that either needlessly eliminate donors from the pool of blood donors in Europe or maybe even worse, suggest to people that they might be at risk of a fatal and untreatable brain disease if, in fact, that's not the case. All right. So is there a hopeful note that we can end <laughs> on here? <laughs> yeah, I think both of these groups, um, both of these groups are, are pursuing their tests, at, you know, commercially and are starting to work with regulatory agencies to test them in larger groups. Um, I think at least in, in one case, there you can't get a whole lot more positive samples, but you can test a whole bunch of samples from countries that didn't have a mad cow outbreak and that would presumably be negative. So I think both of these groups are pushing really hard to validate their tests and, and move them into, into blood banks. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly. No problem. Thank you. Kelly Servick is a staff writer for Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. 
You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.